Well, good morning again. My name's Jordan. If I missed you earlier, I'm the pastor here. We're glad you're here. I got to say, I'm excited about Micah's book, but at the same time, I'm a little convicted. We talk a lot about like knowing each other and living in a community together. And I've known him for like several years now, and I meet with him at least once a week for either accountability or elders meetings, and I had no idea he'd written a book. <laughs> he, he texted me like two weeks ago. He's like, hey, um, I wrote a book. And I was like, what? Like, who does that? Like, who just writes a book and doesn't tell anybody? I, I don't know. Micah, evidently. <clears throat> but so um, anyway, so not the greatest commercial for like community and being known, but, um, but cool generosity and it's a cool book. I've, I've started reading it to uh, my oldest kid. Um, so anyway, uh, man, here we are in Luke. And um, as I said, we're moving quickly now through the end of the year, and we're going to be picking up very intense and very um, meaningful passages in this last half of Luke. And so today, the story of the prodigal son uh, is its most commonly known. And um, really, this is probably the most popular, this and the Good Samaritan are probably the most popular stories that Jesus has told, the most well-known, far beyond uh, church world, right? Like these are culturally referenced and known uh, parables uh, by, by most. And people love to tell the story about how kind and generous the father was to the idiot son that made a mess of his life. And really, uh, people are pleased to tell the story about you know new beginnings and all of those types of things. Uh, but really, um, to understand what's, what's going on in this story, really, you need to know that this is actually one of the stories that got Jesus killed. You ever think about, you ever wonder why Jesus got killed? Like, like, we know, like, God sent him, we know that was a part of the plan, and, and we know that it happened, and we know that the religious people were angry at him, but you ever think about why? Like, why, do you, why are you going to kill this guy? Like, this is a guy that's healing people from diseases that doctors can't can heal, right? He's setting people free from demons that they've been oppressed by for, like, he's feeding people with, like, a little bit of food. He's feeding multitude, thousands and thousands of people. Like, it seems like this is the guy you want to keep around, right? Like, if, if anybody's going to be, be preserved, it's going to be this guy. So, what, like, why did Jesus get him, like, what got him killed by the religious people? What made them so angry that they would want to actually crucify him? And the answer is stories like this. Passages like this actually are behind what, what fueled the rage that sent Jesus um, to the cross, humanly speaking. We know it was a part of God's plan. And so really to understand that and to know what's going on in this story, you really got to know the audience and you really got to know the context. And so um, we're going to flip back to um, the beginning of chapter 15, and we're going to kind of see how this is all connected and, and really the, the clues as to what's going on in the story and why stories like this were so um, infuriating for the religious people are found here in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. And so what it says here is really this story that, that um, Kim just read for us is, is uh, the third in Jesus' story, uh, which is a response to the religious people grumbling. So he tells three stories, and, and that one's kind of the climax to it. And so to kind of understand it, we need to know what's going on here. And so in, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, this is familiar language to us, so we kind of know that they got angry that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, but I think the, the impact or the reason of that is kind of lost on us culturally. Like, we... Um, we don't really understand what the big deal about tax collectors were, partly because we have weird songs about them, like, like Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and 
wee little man was he, and climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You guys know this, right? Um, and so we have this, this weird image of tax collectors, and then, and then what we've commonly talked about, which is true about tax collectors, is that they, um, you know, they, they took more than they were commanded to take. So like they, they had to exact, you know, 40 bucks from so-and-so, but they would, you know, the government needed them to get $40 from so-and-so, but they would take 50 and then they would pocket the 10, right? And so they, they made themselves a profit and made themselves rich off of taking more than they were commissioned to take. And so that is true. And so we talk about that. And there's certainly, you know, a piece of like, yeah, you wouldn't like that person necessarily if they're taking advantage of you that way, but it's not the full impact of a tax collector. Like to know why that is so noted, and it is over and over again in the gospel. Like it makes note of these people. They are, they are um, really, really hated in this time. And the reason is you got, you got to zoom out kind of culturally and historically and know what was going on in this time. The, the, the tax collectors were the people that were serving the oppressive Roman Empire. So if you know, um, you know, in history, Rome at this time is ruling really from England to India. Um, and it's a large, massive span of an empire. And, and these were um, not just, like, this was an aggressive people, uh, a brutal people that were known to, to come in and sack an entire city and, and rape and pillage um, everyone that was there, and then really at times to tr- crucify, like um, all down outside the city limits, they would, they would put up crosses and just crucify thousands of people as they come in and out of, of the city so that anybody coming in would, would have to see that and behold the, just the brutality of Roman rule. And so this is, the, uh, this is what's going on in this time, and, and this is who is ruling these people. And so if you think about, like, to rule a, a span that is that large, like, it's not a huge deal for us in our day. Like, we have um, incredible, like, you know, the United States is huge, and, and even if you're thinking about, you know, other times of, of a massive spread of land and you're trying to rule those people, like, it's not that big a deal. Like, if, if there's a rebellion in the part of the United States, like, somebody's just going to push a button, send some helicopters, like, it's going to be ended pretty quickly um, because we have incredible, man, we have some, like, we have some incredible military um, abilities. And I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted. I'm thinking about, um, I just hung out with, with uh, Davey Poole, uh, David and Cindy Poole's oldest son last night at Becca's wedding. And um, that guy is a fighter pilot. He flies an A-10 Warthog. And um, first of all, if I was that dude, like, I would just want everybody to know. Like, if I'm a fighter pilot, like, I'll probably just wear the jumpsuit all the time. <laughs> at least the helmet. If I couldn't, like, as soon as I'd introduce myself, I'd be like, I'm Jordan, fighter pilot, you're welcome. Like, I would just, I just want everybody to know, but Davey's not like that. He's super cool, and um, anyway, but it's incredible, dude. Like, the, the plane that he flies, it's, it, like, has this, basically a cannon mounted underneath it. It's, like, 30 millimeter, I don't even know, the huge bullets, and it shoots, like, 70 per minute from, a you know, 1,000 feet in the air, and it's, I don't know. It's just crazy. So we have technology like that. So if there's a rebellion in our day, like it's easy for the government to just go, you know, send that, take care of that. But in this day um, of Jesus, the first century, there's not that kind of technology. There's not helicopters and, and planes and, and different things that you could dispatch and be, you know, across the world in a few hours. That's not the type of world they're living in. So how do you rule a, a nation, a, an empire that is that large? Well, the answer is you have to have a huge army, right? You have to have a massive, massive army. And so how do you pay for 
a massive army like that? How do you get them weapons and training and gear and all that they need? Well, you have to have a, a massive tax, right? You have to tax the people. And so um, that's what's going on. So you're, you're, the tax collectors in this day are Israelites that have purchased the right to work for the Roman government to exact taxes from their brothers and sisters, you know, the people that they live amongst to fund this oppressive army that has come in and raped and pillaged and, and taken over their cities and is living, you know, causing them to live under this oppressive rule. And so when you think about it in that context, like these are traitors of a, of a degree that it's really hard to compare in our day and age. Like there's really not a, a, a line that you can draw that, that makes you go, okay, like in today's world, that's a tax. Like we just don't have anything to really translate that to. Um, and so th- these people are, are the ones that the tax collectors that the Gospels are referring to. And then, so it's tax collectors and sinners. And again, that's kind of lost on us because in our world, we know, like we talk about how, every, you know, we're all sinners and that's really, really familiar to us. And, and so we kind of just like, oh, okay, well, they're, they're sinners. But for them, like what, what it meant when, there's, when it said sinners, that these are, the, these are like the outcast of the society. Like these are the, the real um, social misfits. These are the people that have made a mess of their life and everybody knows it. These are the drunks. These are the drug addicts. These are the prostitutes. And then for them, also, these are the ones that have diseases or are disabled. Because it was common in that day, if you were blind or you had a, a disability from birth, like uh, this, this person, either this person or their parents were sinners, right? You see that the disciples asked Jesus that a couple of times, like, hey, this guy's blind. Who's sin, his, him or his parents? Like, what caused that? And so this is, the, this is really the crowd. You need to get that picture in your mind. This is the crowd that is gathering around Jesus, tax collectors and sinners being the, the worst of the worst. And, and they, that crowd is consistently drawn to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus, not only does he welcome them, let them come and hear his teaching, but he embraces them and sits down at the table with them. And in this culture, like to, to sit down at a meal is a sign of true embrace and of welcoming and like identifying yourself with these people. And so Jesus is blowing up the religious cultural mindset that is happening in his day. And the religious people are feeling their power being taken from them as Jesus kind of dismantles the construct and the worldview that they've been living out of. And he's beginning to rebuild it, um, but they don't like the power that they're losing. They don't like the, the, um, the implications of Jesus' teaching and, and the, the type of kingdom that he seems to be bringing and the way that he's confronting them. And so when he, t- when he tells stories like this, and, and we... we um, so disconnected culturally that it, they're, they're warm and fuzzies about you know, the implications of it, but the, the implications for Jesus in the moment is, is this is what is enraging the religious leaders of the day as he's painting a picture for them of, of why um, they're feeling the power slip from their hands and why they're grumbling. And so Jesus, in response to their grumbling, um, tells three stories. And that starts in verse 4. And, and so he tells the first two stories, and, and they're about a sheep and a coin. And so he's just kind of priming them to, to connect some dots and help them understand how there's reason to celebrate even when something, um, you know, like a sheep or a coin is lost. Like, it makes sense to try to look for that. And when you find it, there's a, there's a celebration that happens. And Jesus ends both of those stories by saying, and 
And so, such as, whenever, uh, you can read it there in verse 7, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Same thing he says in verse 10 after talking about the lost coin. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so Jesus is showing them, there's this, uh, he's painting this picture of what he's doing. And and really, this is all a culmination of what we've seen in in Luke so far. As the the angels announced the good news that came, right? And we talked about that from Luke 2, and and what's culminating there of God's great grand plan of rescue. And then when Jesus shows up, he says, I've come to to, um, bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to seek out those that are broken and and hurting. I'm going to bring them in. And so all of this is making sense. Like Jesus is doing what he said he would do, but he's making sense out of it with different stories. And so he's saying, like, listen, you understand, like, if if one sheep is lost, it economically might not make a ton of sense to risk your life and and go out and find that one sheep when you got the other 99 there. But Jesus says, when you you get that sheep, there's going to be great rejoicing. And and so he connects those dots. He says the same thing about a coin. A lady, her entire wealth is, is 10 is in these 10 coins, and she loses one of them, like she's going to do all she can to find that one. And when she does, she's going to celebrate. And Jesus says, that's what it's like when one of these sinners, these people that you can't stand, the tax collectors and the sinners, when they, when they repent and join the kingdom of God, there's much celebrating in heaven that happens. So then he's going to tell this third story. And this third story is going to humanize the process a bit. And he's going to start connecting the dots to people and really to the entire narrative of the scripture. And so that's where we find ourselves in um, Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And the story is, is commonly, it's probably in your Bible, headed the parable of the prodigal son. I think it's, it's more appropriately named the parable of the two sons or the father that had two sons, because there's really two sons in the story. And we need to hear from both of them. We need to see both of them to get the, the impact of Jesus' teaching. And we need to remember who Jesus is speaking to. This is in response to the religious people grumbling about sinners and outcasts coming into Jesus' fold. And these are the stories that he tells. And so uh, it starts out, again, familiar story. There was a man who had two sons in verse 11, and the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. Um, And so the dad uh, divided his property between them. And so in this day and age, the the firstborn son is going to get two-thirds of the, uh, the dad's inheritance, the birthright. And so, um, the, you know, the second born son is going to get that, that last third. So this is not an uncommon thing for him to get that amount. But what is, is shocking in the story is that he asked for it while his father is still alive. Um, obviously this is something he's set to get upon his father's death. The, the property, the estate would be divided two thirds to the firstborn, and then a third to, um, this younger brother. And so, uh, the amount is not the issue here. It's that he asked for it while his father is still alive. And if you can kind of put yourself there as a parent and, and hear your child asking that, in essence, what they're saying is, like, Dad, I, I don't, <laughs> I wish you were dead, basically. Like, I, I'm no longer interested in, in you and in relationship with you and what you, like, but, but I really want what I'm going to get when you die. And so if we could just speed that process up and you go ahead and give me that today, that would be great. I want to cut ties with you. I want to go do my own thing. I want to live life without your rules, without um, these expectations. So if you could give me what I'm owed, that'd be great. And um, 
I'm going to go on my way. So it, it's incredible that the dad does it. Like, he doesn't have to do that. There's nothing. In fact, there's a, you know, in, in the law, like back in Leviticus, like there's actually a provision that says dad could have whooped him, like right then and there, like beat the, like, beat the kid, said, no, no, man, don't disrespect me that way. Like, that's not, that's like, your, honor your father and mother was a big deal in this culture. And so for this young man to come and ask for this from his dad, he's certainly not entitled to this at this point, but the dad does it. The dad divides up his property and gives it to his son. And so the, the son, not many days later, he gathered all that he had, so he, he cashes it in, um, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property, property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. So what happens, the guy uh, takes his father's money, cashes it all in, and he goes and he's going to live it up real large. He goes to one of the big cities and, he, and he's reckless living. I mean, there's, uh, Jesus could get into detail there, but it's really like, in the end, whatever he's spending that on, you know, um, probably partying and loose women and, and just whatever his heart desires, like he's just going to live it up. He's young, he's immature, he thinks this is what life is all about, he thinks this is where he'll find happiness, and so he goes and he spends it. And then uh, a famine comes, and, and um, kind of the equivalent of an economic downturn where the economy crashes and uh, things get bad real quick. And so um, things get bad, he's spent all of his money, he's not been smart, he's not saved, he's not invested, he's not got a job, he's just been spending money, and so now he's caught in a, in a place where he has nothing. And it gets so bad that he hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now, for a young Jewish boy, this is a big deal, right? Like, pigs are unclean, not supposed to be eaten, not supposed to be... Far- like, and so he has hired himself out to a pig farmer. And he gets so hungry, in verse 16, that he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with that. We call it slop, right? And if you're like, I've been hungry. You know, like, I've been in that place where, you, you know, you're talking to, your, talking to your wife, like, what do you want? I don't know. Just anything sounds good, right? Like, I've been that hungry, but I've never been that hungry, right? Like, I've, I've been where, like, I can go to any restaurant here and eat whatever you like, but I've never been where I'm like, yeah, that pig slop. Load me up some of that. I'll, I'm good. Like, that, like, this is a level of desperation here where um, things are really, really, really bad. You got a picture that the young man has probably lost a lot of weight, He's probably, um, his, his appearance has completely changed. He's no longer um, clean-shaven and, 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 and well-kempt. He has, it's very clear when, when you see this guy. Like, you don't have to ask how he's doing. You don't have to ask how life's going. You just see him, and you're like, oh, man, um, he, he's a busted-up mess. And so that, that's where this guy is, but verse 17. But when he came to himself, and listen, here's the, here's the big idea of this story. There's, what we're going to see is there's actually two ways to be lost. There's two ways to be uh, in rebellion and separated from, from God. One is to, is to live life in this licentious and frivolous and immoral way that's really obvious. That guy's sleeping around, he's doing drugs, he's drinking, he's doing all the things that even the culture says, like, yeah, that guy, he, he's, he's partying up. And then the other way is to be the rule keeper and and to, to follow all the rules and be religious and think that you're entitled to God's favor. And we're going to see that both of those are, are separated and, and equally dangerous as far as our relationship to God. But what we're seeing from this young man is, is God, like the father, 
in this story, who's representative of God, like gives him what he asked for. And you got to think as you see this when he came to himself. Like for many of you, you, you know this point in your story. Like whenever you snapped back into your reality and you realized that the life that you were living, the life that you thought you needed to live has not provided you what you thought it would, what you hoped it would, that the promises have been empty, that sin is deceitful, and that sex, money, drugs, whatever it may be, didn't fulfill like the pleasure was only temporary and fleeting. And so there's kind of this um, reality that maybe the father allowed him, like the father gave him his inheritance to let him go and figure out that life is not going to be found in those things to the end that, that he would come back to himself and realize that what he, what he really needed was a life that was far different than what sin was promising him, a life with his father. And so he comes back to himself. He came to himself, verse 17, and he said, man, here I am. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm lusting after some pig food. But how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? He, he's saying, listen, I left, like, I left a really good situation. God really was good to me. Like, my father really was good to me. To the point that, like, my dad was a good investor. Like, my, my dad had a good estate. Like, not only was I well off, but, man, the guys that worked for my dad, they had plenty. Like, they had plenty of food. And so, <clears throat> my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he, he's, he's realized, like, man, if I could just go back to dad's house and just, if he'll just hire me. Like, I'm not, I don't pretend I belong back in the house. I don't pretend I'm going to be a son. But if he'll just hire me and let me work for him, my life will be a hundred times better than this pig slop situation. And so, so, he, practiced, so, he, so he prepares his speech. And he, and he begins to, to say, like, I, I know, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you would, just treat me as one of your hired servants. In verse 20, and he rose and he came to his father. So, so here's this moment. You've got you to put yourself in this position. You've got to think about what you're going to be feeling, what you're going to be um, experiencing as you're walking back home and, um, and wondering how your dad's going to receive you. And, and we've all probably been there and practiced our speeches, right? If you can fast, if you can rewind back to your adolescent days, whenever you know you're caught or you know you're going to have to talk to your parents, you're practicing your speech, right? And you, you're, you're going through um, what you're going to say, and, and you're hoping, well, okay, if, if you act this way, then I'll say this. If you act this way, I'm just going to, like, you know, get in a physical position and take my beating or whatever it may be. Like, but he's, he's going through that, and, and as he approaches his father... It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him and kissed him. So here's what he finds. It's not this, this father who is who's standing back with his arms folded, waiting to say, I told you so, and waiting to rub it in his face and waiting to watch him grovel and beg 
No, what we, what we get is a picture of the father who's been looking, who's been, who's been waiting and watching. He knows there was a famine in the land. He's not even sure if his son is, has survived it. He, he knows his son wasn't smart enough to save any money. He's heard from other people that his son has lost a lot of weight and has maybe uh, been in and out of rehab. Like, we don't know, but like, we get this picture of like the dad is, is, is waiting and longing and looking out each day, hoping that, that he'll see his son coming back around the corner. And then the day that he does... Again, he doesn't posture himself up and practice his speech of, of learning his lesson, but instead, he humbles himself and he takes off running. And we're, this is lost on us, but culturally, a man of this stature, grown men in general are not going to run in this culture unless they're like, you know, somebody's trying to harm them or they've committed a crime and they're trying to get away. Like, it's just not respectable for a man, especially a wealthy landowner of this guy's stature, to, to run. And especially with the, the garb that they wore, he's going to have a robe and an undergarment, so he's going to have to, you know, kind of like a little girl, like pick up his whole dress deal and take off running. And, and so it's completely a, a humiliating thing that nobody of this guy's stature would do, and yet the father sees his son, and he has compassion upon him, and he takes off running. And he ran, and he embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stopped him. He wouldn't even let him finish his speech. And he said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son is dead, or was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So this is the, the, the picture that Jesus is painting of how God has been leaning in and longing to, to see his, his children return to him, even though they've made a mess of their life. And he knows that. And he knows that they don't, they're, they're not entitled to anything. And yet, that's the posture of the Father. And so this is the idea that, that Jesus is, is painting here to, for the people to show, really, the, the response of Jesus to these tax collectors and sinners that, that they have deemed so unworthy and so, um, really, they've made their own bed kind of thing. Like, they deserve what they've got. And Jesus says, no, 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 this, this is the posture of my father, and he throws. So not only does he does he let him come back in. Not he doesn't. He you know like we would expect to say, like again we've dealt with people like this, right? That have made a mess of their life. And and if you're being wise, right, in today's world, like you're gonna you're gonna make that guy prove himself a little bit, right? You might say like, listen, I'm really glad you're back, and I really hope this goes well. But you're gonna need to live in the in the farmhouse for a few weeks. You're gonna need to show me that you're you know you can you can be off the drugs. Like we're gonna send you to rehab. We're gonna we're gonna watch you and, and like if you can prove that this is legit, then we'll you know we'll talk about like bringing you back in or or now you can start earning and you know you've cost us a lot of money and so you're gonna to have to repay. You. Like we, there's a whole list of things that we would probably do as a logical parent in response to this guy. But what do we see? As the father says, won't even let him finish his speech. He stops and tells his servants, go get one of my robes. Go get one of my rings. And in this, this day and age, that's a, that's a sign of like business. Like there's a seal of the family. And what he's doing is, is he's reinstituting him back in, as an heir to the family. Which is, this is scandalous. This is crazy. Because he's already given him a third of his estate. And he's divided it up 
I'm giving him his third, and he squandered it. It's gone. It'll never be returned. And, and so when he throws the robe and the ring back on him, he's saying, you're part of the family again. I'm going to make you an heir again. And so in that moment, automatically, the estate is once again divided. And what had become the older brothers, two-thirds, is now going to be split again as this, this young fool is welcomed back into the family. And he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He says, go and kill the fattened calf and throw a party. Now listen, they, they didn't eat meat a lot. It was kind of a, uh, a rare occasion delicacy, and it's certainly not the fattened calf. Like, that was saved for weddings and, and huge celebrations. And so for him, he says, go and kill the fattened calf for my son who was once dead is now alive. He was lost, and now he's found. I want you to invite everybody to come and celebrate. And this is like a legit party. It says in just a minute there was music and dancing. So this was not a Baptist party. Okay? We know that because there was dancing. Um, listen, so the, the church my wife and I got married at is a Baptist church, and it literally said in its bylaws that there could only be three dances at the wedding. Like, I'm not kidding. It said that. And so that includes the, the, the first dance, the bride and groom, the, the, the daddy-daughter dance and the mom said, like, that's it. And then they're, they're calling it off. You dance more, you're a sinner, you're done. And so, like, I, like I, was, I was on staff there, so I was a little afraid to, you know, buck that rule too much. I didn't want to lose my job. But Riley was like, that's ridiculous. We're going to dance more, and whoever's counting can leave. Um, so I think we did five. I don't know. Um, <laughs> compromise. Um, and so I remember the first time, like, that's, that's the parties that I was used to, especially when it came to Christianity. Like, you're going to throw a party, it's going to be really boring, and you, you, can't, you can't play, you can only play, like, gospel music, and it's going to be, you know, whatever. And, and so the first time, so then we, we moved to St. Louis, and we went to the Journey, Tower Grove, and I remember the first wedding we went to up there, and, um, and people were drinking but not drunk, and there was, there was wine, and there was and people were dancing, and they were, like, good at it. And I was like... I felt really gypped and, and really white. Like, I was just really aware that I did not have any rhythm. But I felt really gypped. I was like, man, I never learned to party like that. I, like, I don't know where the Grinnells learned it, but they, they know how to party. They know how to dance. I feel the same way when I went to their party. But, like, I just didn't, nobody taught me to dance that way. And so I was like, this is really cool. Like, these people love Jesus. And they're my, like, my, one of my pastors, who was like my mentor, was like the guy that was in the circle. And everybody else stopped dancing to watch him dance. And I was like, well, that's cool. Like, I didn't know he could do that. And I'm like, they're partying. I'm like, man, this is like, there's something I've been missing out on. And there, there was this, like, they know how to celebrate. And so this is one of those parties. Like, it's a big deal. There's a celebration going on. So much so that when we see the, the older brother is coming in from the field, he can hear the party. And his response is going to show us a whole other side of, of what it means to rebel against God. And you've got to remember who he's talking to here. You've got to remember the, the Pharisees and the scribes. So the older son, verse 25, was out in the field. You've got to think about it. Him and his brother used to manage, the, manage their dad's farm, their whole estate. On their, like that was their job, right? And so now that his brother's gone, it's all on him, right? So he's probably working twice as hard. Um, he's got more work to do, and, and that's where he's been. He's been out in the field laboring, doing the job that his brother bailed on, and, and as he comes back in, he hears this music and the dancing, and he, he calls to one of the servants. He doesn't go to the dad directly. He calls one of the servants and asks, well, like, what's going on? What do these things mean? Verse 27, he said to him, he says, uh, well, your brother came back home, 
And your father's killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, he was angry, and he refused to go in. First of all, like, it's kind of a petty way to, like, he ain't punished. Like, nobody cares, right? Like, I'm not going in. All right. Like, they're already partying. The dancing's already happened. Like, you're not really punishing anybody by your, your petty choice to, like, I'm not going in. Like, all right, dude, like, sorry. Like, nobody, like, uh, so he's, 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 he's angry, and he refuses to go in. Why? Why? Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees and the scribes. If you don't know who those guys are, they're, they're the religious, like, varsity team. Like, just to be a, a Pharisee, like, you had to have memorized the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorize. Like, most of y'all didn't even make it through that in our Bible reading plan this year. Right? You tapped out. Leviticus. Right? Um, these guys had it memorized. They were, they were incredible rule keepers. They were really, really good at checking off lists. They were really, really good at their religious obligations. They would, they would read one of God's laws and take it above and beyond. And, and this, is, this is who they were. They had worked really, really hard at their status and their position in God's family or in society, more accurate. And so for, for Jesus to come in and start embracing prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinners, it's offensive to them because they're the ones that deserve God's favor. They're the ones that deserve the party, right? Like Jesus eating at the table with these, these tax collectors and sinners, like that's the, the party that Jesus is talking about in the story. Like Jesus, you see over and over again in the gospel, like Jesus um, is, is throwing these parties and he's let, and like he's doing it at Zacchaeus' house. Matthew was a tax collector. He throws a party at his house and, and it's full of all these sinners and the Pharisees and the religious people are just filled with rage. They can't believe it. That's the party that's going on in the story of the prodigal son. And they're furious that Jesus would extend not only forgiveness, but such restoration to these people who had made such a mess of their life. His father came out and entreated him. We're going to come back to that later. But, but he answered his father. So, so the, his, his dad goes out and, and says, man, would you come in? Would you, would, you, would you come in and enjoy the party? But he answered him. He says, he says look, dad, the, these many years I have served you. That language there is, is more of, of, of slavery language. But he says, I, I've never disobeyed your command. Yeah, you never gave me a young goat. First of all, why are you asking for a goat, dude? Like, they're eating steak in there. Like, I, I don't know. Like, maybe, he, I don't know. Like, I don't know why you're asking for a goat whenever they're, they've killed a fattened calf. But that's his, that's his complaint. Um, I've, I've never disobeyed your command. I, I ne like, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, 
you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what we see is there was the good son. He had kept all the rules. He stayed, like he didn't ask for his inheritance. He stayed back. He was keeping the farm. He was doing his work. He, he kept all of his dad's commands. And yet whenever he sees his dad celebrating with joy, his response is grumbling and, and really a, a pity party. And what Jesus is showing is that there are, there are two ways to rebel and to separate ourselves from God. One is really obvious, to go and, and live a life of just licentious immorality. Everybody can see that, right? It's not subtle. We know that person. We know, what, we know how their life is. We know they've spent all their money on this. We know we, we can see all that. But then there's, a, there's another way that, that is just as dangerous, but it's a little more conspicuous, right? On the outside, everything looks good. This person is, is cleaned up. It's religious. It, you know, like they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're the good kid. But on the inside, what Jesus is revealing in the story is that it was all about them. That both of these sons are actually using their father for their own selfish gain. It just plays itself out in two different ways. Because what we find is the older son isn't like, he's like, I've been with you all these years and you never threw a party for me. And the dad says, listen, yeah, you have. And, and all that is mine has always been yours. Our family is whole now. Like, we're celebrating. It's not about him deserving this, and I gave them this over here. We're celebrating that one was lost, and now he's found. And you, you were never lost. Like, you were here the whole time. That's why we're celebrating, and he can't get it, and he can't get it, and he can't understand it. And here's the deal. Jesus is trying to help them understand grace because they don't get it. The religious people of their day, like, they don't get it. The older son has lived a life of duty. He, could, he really, he says, I, I've obeyed for years. Like the, the, the imagery there is one of, of slavery. Like there's no joy in his posture of serving the Lord. And so many of you, again, we've, we've identified ourselves. We've identified other people as the prodigal son, and we, we've preached the gospel to them as like God will like embrace you. He's longing for you to come home. He'll restore you. He'll put on his righteousness. And all of that is true. But a lot of times we fail to examine ourselves and see which of those brothers we are. It's easy to kind of, like some of you are well aware that you're the younger brother. Like you know that's your story in your life, that you made a mess of things and that God welcomed you back home and changed your life. Others of you, uh, you, you can pick out other younger brothers and you're, you know, like that's what you do. Is you, like that's always a dangerous place whenever you, you start hearing preaching and you're like, oh, I wish like so-and-so needs to hear this or I hope they're listening or whatever. But we need to, we need to examine ourselves and see really which of these we're prone to. Are we prone to the, the self-discovery, uh, no rules kind of life where we just rebel against it all? Or are we prone to the rule keeping? And are we prone to, to, to living this good life and finding our identity and being the, the good kid, the good person, the good woman, the good man? Because what we see is this, there's just a life of duty inside of the older brother. And many of you, you have been brought to church. Like, we're, this is a Bible Belt culture. So, like, you were brought to church from the time you were a kid. And you were, like, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to church. So you go to church on Sundays because it's the right thing to do, right? So 
many of you are like, yeah, I don't really want to be here. Like, I wish you, like, you could be done right now and we can go to lunch. But like, I'm here because it's the right thing to do. Like, there's even like a social, like, it, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of good for business to be a good church going person, right? Or, or it's, it's good for your social status. Like, it, it's, it's, it's the expected thing to do to go to church. But so meanwhile, you're doing the right things, but your heart is far from God and, and, and you're not like, so what you need to ask yourself, do you enjoy being in the presence of the Father? Like, do you enjoy being in church? Do you enjoy singing songs to God? Or are you just like, oh man, like, we really need five, could two not be enough? Or like, I, like whatever, are we done with this yet? Like, are you just like going through the motions because that's what you feel like you have to do? Or is there joy? Like, do you enjoy being in the presence of God? Or are you just doing it out of duty and obligation? You see, his obedience was purely transactional. He was just doing what he was told so that he would get what he wanted. He was working like his father was just a means to the end, to, to the end that, that he wanted, was this estate, this, this uh, flourishing life. And so his heart is revealed in this that it's totally transactional in what, the way that he is postured himself against God. There's really this posture of like, yeah, I, Dad, I would have loved to party, but I've been busy. Like, I've been doing your work, right? And for many of you, you see somebody that's like totally blown their whole life, and you're like, man, I would have liked to party, but I was going to church, right? Like, I, I've been doing this. I've been checking off the boxes. I've been uh, doing what I thought God had called me to do. And so here's this person that's really made a mess of their life, and God embraces them, and they get the same reward that I do. Like, that's hard for some of us to swallow, So what we have is a story about two sons, both equally lost. One who is physically far away from his dad, but starts to understand his dad's heart. It comes near to his dad's heart. One who is physically near and in proximity to his dad, but whose heart is far, far from him. And Jesus paints a picture of God the Father inviting both into the party. Like, actually... Jesus is pretty kind here to the Pharisees. A lot of times Jesus is speaking very harshly to them, calling out judgment. And really this, this passage is one of, hey, actually, I'm inviting you to come in. Like you can come in and join the party. I'm not going to change the party. I'm not going to apologize for the party. This guy was lost and now he's found. He's one of my children and I'm celebrating, but you can come in and join us. really what the story is interesting, because in the first two stories that Jesus told about the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's somebody going to look for him, right? Do you notice that? Those first two stories, if you've read Luke 15, and if you haven't, I, I encourage you to read the whole chapter tonight or today, but in those first two stories, somebody loses a sheep, and the shepherd goes and looks for him. The second one, lady loses her coin, she, she, turn, you know, like, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the whole house, she's looking for the coin. And then this, this third story, there, nobody goes and looks for the prodigal son. Do you notice that? There's an interesting change in the, the narrative here. And I've even you know, heard somebody recently say, well, why didn't the dad go look for the prodigal son? And I think Jesus always has a, a larger view of what's going on than we do. And the real good news of this story comes in its more historical narrative interpretation. What Jesus is actually doing is he's telling the story of the whole Bible. Right? And what, what really the way that he leaves it hanging 
is, is he's, he's really creating us a need for a true and better older brother, right? One that does care and one that is willing to give of himself. And so really, as you rewind and you think back to, to really Adam and Eve, they are like the younger brother that demanded, like that they wanted what God had, but not God himself, right? And so they chose to alienate themselves, to, to separate themselves from God and to do life without him, and it made a mess of things. And then very quickly, you have Cain and Abel, Right? And, and their story gets into a mess. And, and the, the warning from God is that, yeah, hey, actually, you are your brother's keeper. You are actually responsible to care for your brother. And then as things get messier and messier and the world gets more and more evil, we have God intervening and creating a people called Israel. Right? Chosen by his grace to be his people, to be his covenant children that he's going to be with, love, bless. And, and not just for their sake, but as they live as God's chosen people, they're to be a light to the world, right? To show everybody else, man, th- this nation's God is the one who, who really provides hope and really cares for them. And so they're commissioned to live with each other, to love kindness, to do justice and love mercy amongst one another, to care for one another. And they're also commissioned to care for the vulnerable in their midst, right? The widows and the orphans, they should not suffer and be in need in the midst of God's people. They should be cared for. And then they're also told to embrace the the refugee, right? So as God's people, he blesses them, but it's not just about them. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing so that all nations will be blessed through you. So this people that God's created for himself are supposed to be ones that, that care for themselves, uh, you know, that are in community with one another, that bear one another's burdens, but then also are a light to the rest of the world where the rest of the world can come and say, I want to be a part of that. I want to know your God. But what happens is the people blow it time and time again, and they're selfish and they're sinful and they walk away from, from God's covenant. But God holds his covenant true and he keeps pursuing his people to the point that in Ezekiel 34, he calls out his people. He calls out the priest and the leaders of the Israelite nation. And he says, you're supposed to be shepherds. These are my people. I committed to, to be their, their God and they would be my people. And I commissioned you to care for them. I commissioned you to lead them. And, and here you are, you're, you're eating the you're taking their offerings and you're, you're doing their thing, like, but you're not caring for them at all. My sheep have wandered off and they're hurt and they're broken and they're lost and they're gone and you're not even going to look for them. Like you're not doing the job of a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, God lines out this whole indictment on his people. He says, you have failed as a shepherd and I'm going to put myself against you and I'm going to come and I'm actually going to be the shepherd and I'm going to do what you didn't and I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to be the good shepherd. I'm going to come and I'm going to seek out my people, those who have wandered far away and I'm going to go and I'm going to call them back to myself and I'm going to bind up their their wounds and I'm going to heal them and welcome them back into the family. And this starts to make sense out of Jesus's claim to be the good shepherd, right? This starts to make sense out of when Jesus came in Luke 4 and he says, I've come to preach good news to the poor and those who are far off, right? To bind up the brokenhearted, to heal those who are wounded. This starts to make some sense out of what Jesus is doing. He's painting a big picture of all of us have walked away from God, right? Like we are all separated from God. Now we may choose one of two ways to kind of save ourselves or to find life in this world. Some of us may choose to just sin however we want and ignore morality and others of us may choose to to keep the rules and we're going to find our identity in that and we're going to be a good conservative person or whatever. Like there's two different paths, but all of us are lost and are without God. And Jesus says, I'm coming. And he told him earlier, he says, listen, It's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick, right? Jesus says, I don't know why you're confused about the tax collectors and the sinners. 
finding hope and healing in my message. This was the whole point of all that I've been doing through your people in the Old Testament, and you failed. And he says, I told you, I would come. I would be the good shepherd, and I would do what you couldn't. And so Jesus comes, and in the story of the prodigal son, we see such beautiful imagery of what the elder brother is supposed to be and who, what he's supposed to do. Because when the, when the father restores the son... You notice he won't, list, he won't even let him finish his speech. He won't let him work and, and, and repay what he's, what he's spent. He stops him, and he, and he puts on a new coat. And, and whose expense is that? Like, does he, does he demand that the, that the younger son, you know, pay that back? No. Who's footing the bill for that restoration, for that forgiveness, and writing all that off? Well, first of all, it's the father, but it's also the older brother, right? Because when the younger brother's restored, that's costing him. And so the the elder brother should have been the one that understood that the point wasn't what dad had, but the point was to have dad. And he should have been brokenhearted that his brother had wandered away and missed that and just trying to find life in dad's possessions. And and instead, hey, he should have went and looked for him and he should have said, hey, man, come back. Come back. You won't find life out here. Life is back there with dad. And I know that when you come back, we'll both have less, but it doesn't matter because what matters is we have dad. The point of what Jesus is teaching is that God is the gospel. The gift that he rewards us with is not just heaven and forgiveness at the end, but it is himself. And he is the father who cares deeply. And the way that restoration is actually going to happen, and man, this is... This connects so many dots. You think about the evil in the world. You think about why God allows these things to happen. Why did this happen in my life? Why are these things happening over here? All of these things. And we sit back and we judge God. Why, God, why aren't you doing anything? But when you read the story of the Bible, like God is commissioning his people to do something about it. Right? Like we don't sit back and go, God, why aren't you doing anything about the orphans that are, that are starving and dying over in these other countries? And he goes, I am. It's you. I'm doing Like you are what I'm doing. I'm gifting you. I'm, I'm blessing you with a, with a really, really wonderful life. I'm blessing you with more money than you need, right? I, I'm giving you space in your house. I, like, you are the, like, I'm working through you. And so what we see is that Jesus didn't come, as he said, to abolish the law and get rid of it, but he's going to fulfill it. And so what Jesus is coming, he's going to be the true and better older brother who says, you know what? I'm going to go and look for those who are lost. God's children, I'm the firstborn among them. I'm going to go and look for those that are lost. I'm going to bring them back into the fold, and I'm going to do so at great cost to myself. We say it every week, Jesus lived the life that we could not live, right? The life we should have lived, seeking other people, giving of ourselves, but Jesus did that for us because we couldn't. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. He gave of himself. Jesus doesn't, like, the offer of the gospel is not help wanted, Right? Like, come and work and see if you can earn your, your, your way back into favor with God. Like, the offer of the gospel is help available, right? Like, Jesus is, is, and the older brother misses this. Like, he thinks that he's earned his, God, his father's favor by all that he's done all these years. And he's saying, no, 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 you, you've been with me the whole time. Like, you're missing it. You, you don't understand grace. The people of Israel didn't understand that they weren't entitled to God's favor. God had chosen them out of his grace and out of his loving kindness and made them a people. And when we forget that, when we start to be an entitled people that, are, that, are, that we think we, we deserve what God has given us, we deserve what we've earned, we, we start to get really judgmental and really unhealthy. That leads to things like racism and, and just pure hatred, right? 
you stop and think about it. Like, did the older brother choose to be born to a dad that was blessed and well off? Like, did we choose to be born the race that we are in the country that we are? Like, did, do you remember any point in your life where you, like, before you were born, you picked, you know, your race and your family and your privilege, and what, like whatever it may be, like you fill in the blank. Like, like when we forget that what we have is by God's grace, then we start to live in a judgmental and blaming posture and we start saying, well, they've got what they deserve. Like I'm entitled to this party because I've been doing what you... And, and we're all just misunderstanding grace. The story just blows up our paradigms as Jesus says, I am the better elder brother. I am the good shepherd who went looking for the sheep. And yeah, there's 99 here, but I'm going to go after the one. And Jesus gives of himself on the cross. And in that moment, he takes us. We're all the younger brother. We're all the ones that have made a mess of our life. It might be through rules and religiosity, but we've still made a mess of our life. The Bible says that our, our good deeds, our righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. So he, he looks at us. And we're, we're filthy in our mess. We're, we're emaciated and hungry and our souls are depraved. Like, and he looks at us and he says, hey, you give me all that. You give me all that. Martin Luther calls Jesus on the cross what he does there, the great exchange. He takes our filth, our, our sin and our unrighteousness and, he, and he, in exchange, he takes what we have and he gives what he has and he, and he lays on us his righteousness. He puts on us a new robe. He puts on us a new ring and new shoes and he says, go enjoy the party. I am thrilled that you are here. I love you. I came looking for you. So the thought, like, in the gospel story, in the story that Jesus is responding with all three of those, he is saying, the dad, like, the dad is not indifferent. He doesn't just wait. He actually is sending out the elder brother, Jesus, to come and bring salvation. So if you're here and you know you're just a younger brother type and you've made a mess of your life and you think there's no way I can be forgiven, there's no way I can be forgiven. Like I'm just here to try to, like maybe I can clean myself up a little bit in a few years. I'll, like I can, I can be a part of this church or I can do this or I can do that. And the good news is, is like he's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not demanding anything from you. He's just inviting you to come. He's inviting you to come. In fact, he loves you so much that he throws his arms around you. And he kisses, like many of you, like the message you've been told your whole life is that you don't matter, right? That maybe from your dad, like you, you don't even know how to relate to the idea of a dad because for you, your father has made it really clear you don't matter to him. And he's never showed you affection. He certainly never came looking for you. The good news of the gospel is that God has. The cross of Jesus Christ is, the, is a display of God's love and of the worth that you have in the eyes of God. And if you're on the other side of that and you think that you're entitled to be here and that you've earned your righteousness, then the invitation is to repent of that, understand grace, and go, hey, you didn't earn anything. You're here only by grace and grace alone. And when you understand grace, you'll be compelled to rejoice when others come. You rejoice in what the Father rejoices in. Rejoice that others are found, and you'll lay down what you have here, and you say, it doesn't matter because I have God, and I'll go and I'll give of what I do have in order that other people may know this good news of the gospel. 
So he calls the religious people to repent of their religion, and he calls the sinners to repent of their sin. And, and there's a third way. There's a, there's a whole other way. It's not about religion or irreligion. It's about Jesus, and it's about him uh, saving us and, and empowering us to live a life by the Spirit, a life that then fulfills, that we join him then. That the Bible says that Jesus is reconciling the world to himself, and then we join him. We, we're becoming ambassadors now. That not only are we embraced and, and brought back in by the Father, but we are sent back out to go find our other lost brothers and sisters and bring them in and tell them that the Father is willing to pardon them and restore them fully. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible truth, and I pray that you would sink it into our hearts beyond what is explainable through words. Help us as we respond, Lord, to see your heart and to run to it. Whether we be the younger brother or the older, may we find life in you today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.